You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On February 9th, 2004, a 21-year-old college student named Mara Murray crashed her car along Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. At least two witnesses called in the crash, and one even briefly spoke to her at the scene. But when police arrived, Mara Murray had disappeared, and she hasn't been seen since. In the years that followed, the investigation to Murray's disappearance turned up a series of deeply unsettling clues. Shortly before Murray disappeared, for instance, she lied to her professors about a death in her family, looked up driving directions to Vermont, and withdrew almost all the money she had from an ATM. But Murray never told anyone, not her friends, family, or even her boyfriend, about any of her plans. So what happened to this promising young nursing student? To this day, Murray's fate remains a mystery. While some think that Murray elaborately planned her own disappearance, others believe that she merely succumbed to the elements. And some speculate that Murray, standing by her car along the side of the road just after the crash, was actually abducted and killed by an unknown perpetrator. This is everything we know about Mara Murray, the college student who has been missing since February 2004. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All Is Interesting, where we explore the untreated corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All Is Interesting staff writer Kalina Fraga. Today, we're untangling the strange disappearance of Mara Murray. Until she disappeared on February 9, 2004, Maura Murray led a fairly normal life. Born to a working-class family in Massachusetts, she grew up in the small town of Hanson with her parents and siblings. Though her parents divorced when she was six, Murray seemed to be a well-adjusted child. She graduated at the top of her class in high school and participated in a number of school sports, including track and field, in which she broke several school records. After graduation, Murray briefly enrolled in the United States Military Academy at West Point before transferring to the University of Massachusetts Amherst to study nursing. And that's where Murray started to exhibit some unusual behavior. In November 2003, a couple of months before she vanished, police arrested Murray for credit card fraud. According to the police reports, she'd noticed a stranger's credit card number on a receipt, written it down on a note card, and then made purchases at a number of local restaurants. The card's owner called the police, who were able to track the purchases to Murray. Murray never gave a reason for why she started using a stranger's credit card, but it seemed she'd get off scot-free, as police told her that the charges would be dismissed as long as she didn't get into trouble for three months. 
It's impossible to know what went through Mary's mind during that period of time, but she seemed to take her brush with the law to heart, and nothing she did between then and February 2004 rang any alarm bells later on. But a few events in February, a couple of days before Murray disappeared, have been studied closely by investigators ever since. On February 5th, for example, Murray had a phone call with her sister Kathleen that was apparently so upsetting that she had to leave her campus security job early. Kathleen was reportedly struggling with addiction issues at the time, and Murray was so upset by their conversation that she could only tearfully tell her supervisor, quote-unquote, my sister, before she quickly left work without any further explanation. Kathleen, however, has since maintained that there was nothing unusual at all about their call that day. Two days later, on February 7th, Murray's father, Fred, came to see her and help her buy a new car. According to a statement he gave to the police, they looked at cars together and later had drinks with a friend of Murray's named Kate at the Amherst Brewing Company. The girls dropped Fred off at his hotel, then took his car to go to a party that night. But on the way home from the party, in an eerie foreshadowing of her disappearance, Murray crashed her father's car. She later claimed that she'd merely hit some sand, which caused the car to skid, and insisted that she hadn't had a drink for a while before getting behind the wheel. Police, however, did not give Murray a breathalyzer test. The car was towed to her father's hotel, where Murray spent the night. Fred later said that she was upset and felt that she'd let him down. The next day, February 8th, Fred dropped Murray off at campus at 1.30pm. He didn't know it as he drove away, but it would be the last time he'd ever see his daughter. On February 9th, the day she disappeared, Maura Murray made a number of bizarre decisions that remain mysterious to this day. After submitting her homework electronically that morning, she emailed her professors and lied about a death in the family that would require her to take a week off from school. Then, Murray called a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire, a town she knew well, and a hotline for hotels in Stowe, Vermont. Though Murray didn't make reservations at either location, she also printed out driving directions to Burlington, Vermont. She then sent an email to her Oklahoma-based boyfriend, Bill Rausch, explaining that she'd gotten his messages but hadn't felt like talking and would call him later. Then, she packed a bag that included makeup, birth control pills, school books, a stuffed animal her father had given her, a necklace her boyfriend had given her, and several days' worth of clothing. At 3.15 that afternoon, Murray withdrew $280, almost all the money she had, from an ATM. She then went to a local liquor store where Murray bought Baileys, Kahlua, vodka, and boxed wine. Then, without telling anyone about her plans, Murray started to drive north toward New Hampshire. Once again, what went on in Maura Murray's mind over the next three or four hours is impossible to know. But what is known is that between approximately 7pm and 7.25pm, Murray lost control of her car and crashed it along Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Her car went off the road, hit trees, spun around, and stopped facing the wrong way on the other side of the road. The collision damaged the windshield, the driver's side, front end, front passenger side, rear driver's side, and rear passenger side of the car, but Murray was apparently left unhurt. At 7.27pm, a resident of Haverhill named Faith Westman called 911 about a car she'd seen in a ditch. 
Shortly thereafter, a bus driver named Butch Atwood also passed the scene of the accident and spoke with Murray, who he later described as shaken up but uninjured. In Atwood's telling, he asked if Murray needed help or if she wanted him to call the police, but she demurred and said she'd already called AAA. Because Atwood knew that cell phone service was spotty, he called 911 when he got home to tell the police about the accident. Yet, by the time the first police officer arrived at the scene, just 20 minutes after Westman made the first 911 call, Maura Murray was nowhere to be found. Peeking into Murray's car, the responding officer later reported that, quote, In plain sight behind the driver's seat of the vehicle, I could see a box of Franzia wine. I could also see red liquid on the driver's side door and the ceiling of the car, unquote. His report also describes a Coke bottle that, quote, contained a red liquor with a strong alcoholic odor, unquote. The police officer enlisted Atwood's help in searching the immediate area, which was also combed by a state trooper and firefighters who'd responded to the crash. But the searchers could find no sign of Maura Murray, and they never would. Days became weeks, which became months, and then years, and Maura Murray remained missing. So what happened to this 21-year-old who had her whole life ahead of her? Ever since her disappearance, a number of chilling theories have emerged. no one knows for sure, some believe that Maura Murray was the victim of foul play, while others think that she may have taken her own life, and some suspect that she perished in the woods after fleeing the scene of her car crash. Murray's family, however, seems to believe that she was most likely abducted by someone, especially because tracker dogs lost her trail about 100 feet from the accident, possibly suggesting that she got into another vehicle, willingly or otherwise. Her father said, quote, my initial thought is still what I think. Somebody locally grabbed her who knows the area, knows where to go, knows how to get into some place and out of some place without being seen, unquote. Their opinion was seconded by Lieutenant John Healy, a retired state police officer and investigator who worked on Murray's disappearance. He speculated that someone killed her in a quote-unquote crime of opportunity, speculating, quote, She got into the wrong car. She went to the wrong house. One minute she's there, ten minutes later she's not, unquote. Indeed, amateur sleuths have pointed to a number of possible suspects over the years. Some have pointed a finger at the bus driver who apparently spoke with Murray, Bruce Atwood, while others have laid their suspicion at the feet of a witness named Rick Forcier, who later claimed to have possibly seen Maura Murray running down the road that night. Atwood, the logic goes, was the last person to see or speak to Murray and may have not told police the full story. Forcier, on the other hand, is suspicious to some because he didn't report his alleged sighting until months after Murray's disappearance. And yet others have also raised suspicions about Murray's father, Fred, and her boyfriend, Bill. However, Murray's family stands by Fred and adamantly denies any accusations that he may have sexually abused his daughter as one true crime author suggested. As for Bill, he was stationed in Oklahoma, making it difficult for him to get to New Hampshire without leaving a trail. According to Murray's sister, Julie, Bill's phone records suggest he was in Oklahoma at the time that Maura Murray disappeared. 
There's also been speculation that Murray fell victim to the same unknown person who possibly abducted Brianna Maitland, a 17-year-old who went missing in Vermont one month after Murray. Though police have denied any obvious links between the two cases, Maitland's father has gone on record saying he believes it is possible that Murray and Maitland's disappearances are connected. In any case, police have pursued the foul play theory by investigating two houses near the scene of Maura Murray's accident. The first, an A-frame house, apparently had blood in one of its closets, but it was too degraded for the police to test. Police also dug up a concrete basement of a second house after cadaver dogs seemed to find something, but that, too, turned up nothing. Fred Murray told local news he was disappointed after the fruitless basement search, but remained determined to find out what had happened to his daughter. He said, quote, What I'd like to do is dig my daughter up, bring her home, give her a proper burial, and put the guy who killed her right in the same hole, unquote. But if Maura Murray wasn't murdered, then what could have happened to her? Some speculate the dedicated young student, stressed out by school and ashamed of stealing credit cards and crashing her father's car, might have taken her own life. Her father, however, refuses to believe this theory. He said, quote, Suicide was the police's thing, because if a bad guy grabbed her, they've got some explaining to do, they've got a case on their hands. But if she walked into the woods and committed suicide, police could say, what are we going to do about that, Mr. Murray? We can't help that. We'll try to find her for you, but we can't stop people from doing that, unquote. Another theory suggests that Maura Murray did indeed die in the woods, but not on purpose. This theory states that Murray, perhaps inebriated and panicking about having crashed a second car in a matter of days, fled the scene and got lost in the nearby forest, where she succumbed to the elements. Though it's possible, doubters of this theory point to the lack of footprints in the snow around Murray's car, and, again, the fact that the dogs lost her scent a mere 100 feet from the scene of the crash. Finally, some have theorized that Maura Murray decided to start a new life somewhere else. Perhaps there was a second car that night that she'd arranged to come pick her up after she purposely crashed her own car. Perhaps Maura Murray decided to give up on being a nurse, run away from her boyfriend and her family, and start over in an entirely new location, though her family insists she would never do something like that. So what happened to Maura Murray on that fateful day in February 2004? To date, no one knows. No one even knows why Murray decided to go to New Hampshire in the first place, and they've accepted that they might never know for sure. As her father said, quote, I don't know why she went. I don't know the cause or combination of circumstances of events. I probably will never know. I probably won't." Unquote. For now, Maura Murray remains missing, and her case remains a haunting reminder both of how little we sometimes know the people we love, and the fatal secrets they might keep. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. 
This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.